We are continuing our sermon series that we began last week on the Acts of the Apostles, as it is entitled probably in your Bible. We talked about last week how it probably is more appropriately the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus Christ in word and deed through his church in the power of his spirit. Uh, And we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 1 verses 4 through 11 this morning. Before we read God's word, let's Uh, Pray for God to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to rightly understand it as it is read and proclaimed. Accomplish in us all your holy will. Put to death within us all that is not of you and lead us in your truth, we pray. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the sake of your great name. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them, the disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This past week was a major moment in American history as a new president and vice president were inaugurated. Here's a little history lesson for you, which you probably already know, but in our almost 250 years as a nation, we have only had 45 individuals serve in this office of president of the United States. Joe Biden is the 46th president, but Grover Cleveland served two non-consecutive terms, so he was both the 22nd and the 24th president. Anyhow, that is to say that this is not a moment to be taken lightly, regardless of how you feel personally about the election of this particular president and vice president, whether you voted for them or not. We need to acknowledge that what we witnessed this past week was a big moment in American history. And this morning, on this Sunday, after the inauguration, we are looking at a passage from God's holy word that represents a major moment in 
world history, human history, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And think about what the ascension represents. It represents not only the vindication of all of Jesus's earthly ministry, that he is truly the son of God and a savior for sinners, but it represents his exaltation as the king of kings, his enthronement in heaven. It is his inauguration, so to speak. And it is by God's good providence and not by my clever planning that we are where we are in God's word today. And I hope that we can see the interesting connection between the inauguration of a U.S. president this past week and Jesus Christ ascending into heaven as the King of Kings. I think that the juxtaposition of the two can be helpful in drawing out some important lessons for the church of Jesus Christ in America today. Jesus, as we discussed last Sunday, spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. He was preparing them for what was to come. He was using this time to equip them with that which was necessary to fulfill the commission that he was going to give to them before he left them physically. And I want to note that even as he was leaving them physically, that this was in accordance with what he had told them before he was crucified. If you remember, the disciples were very distressed when Jesus announced to them that he would be going away. Jesus, even as he acknowledges their sorrow, he says to them in John chapter 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And Jesus goes on to tell them of the advantage of having the helper who is the Holy Spirit, who will come and bring conviction of sin, will guide the people of God into all truth, and will give glory to God the Father. Now, can you imagine what these disciples were thinking as Jesus told them he was leaving them, but that it would be to their advantage? It must have been a very hard truth to hear and an even harder truth to understand at that point. It was, though, in his departing that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given, and thus his promise that he would never leave them nor forsake them would be somewhat paradoxically fulfilled. For he was leaving them physically, but through the sending of the Holy Spirit, he would live in them spiritually, empowering them and going with them wherever they went. Nevertheless, now starting in verse 4, the moment for Jesus to depart has drawn near, and he reminds his disciples of these promises, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Note here that he commands them to wait for the Holy Spirit. We're going to return to this in just a few moments. The disciples at this point in the text, however, knowing that something monumental is taking place, ask him. They ask him this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
This is what they wanted to know before Jesus leaves them. In this sacred moment, this is what is on their minds. They had been patiently waiting for this man who they knew was the Messiah to finally do what they expected him to do. In the Gospels, we see that they believed that the kingdom of God was going to be established by political earthly power. Their idea of the Messiah was a soldier who was going to be strong enough to drive out any occupying military forces. In these days, the land was occupied by the Romans. So the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would expel the Romans and set up the earthly kingdom of David. The crucifixion had been an unexpected twist in the disciples' expectations, but clearly they're still holding to this old-fashioned belief. And they think that the time has finally arrived for Jesus to make his move. So do you hear what they're asking? Do you hear what they're asking? Jesus, are you going to make Israel great again? This is, in essence, what they are wondering, what they are now asking, what they are hoping for. And we can understand why Jesus had led them up to the Mount of Olives. And there they are having this conversation, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, David's city, the seat of earthly power. And you have to imagine that they're standing up there aflame with expectation. This has to be it, they were thinking. So what they were thinking about in this moment was an earthly kingdom, a national kingdom, and they were expecting its immediate establishment. I love what John Calvin says about their question to Jesus. He says this, there are as many heirs, there are as many heirs in the question as words. You see, the disciples of Jesus clearly didn't understand that this kingdom that Jesus had come to establish was something more than Israel. More specifically, they didn't understand that Jesus hadn't come to reestablish Israel. What they were anticipating, what they were hoping for was a return to the good old days when David was king. And they revealed themselves to be myopic in their view. Their focus was nationalistic. Their sole concern was for the nation of Israel. They wanted a political kingdom. They wanted a Jewish kingdom. They wanted a geographically restricted kingdom. So listen to how Jesus responds. Verses 7 and 8, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What Jesus wanted his disciples to understand was that he had come to establish a new kingdom, a kingdom much larger in scope than the nation of Israel, a kingdom that included more than just people of Jewish descent. In fact, it was a kingdom that would transcend all worldly kingdoms and would reach across every border and boundary. It was a kingdom that would be composed of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It was an eternal kingdom. It was a kingdom over which he himself would reign for all eternity. So what Jesus tells them is that it isn't their business to know when this kingdom would be fully established. He, in a way, is 
deflecting their question, telling them it wasn't their concern. And he redirects them to what was to be their concern. This was their calling. This was their commission. They were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. This was to be their focus. Next Sunday, we're going to return to this passage and look at these four spheres of mission, as they have been called, these four areas to which Jesus sends his disciples. But first, we need to understand their task as witnesses. This is going to be a reoccurring word and message we see throughout Acts, this identification as witnesses of Jesus and for Jesus. So what is a witness? Well, we probably most commonly think of this word in the context of the court of law. Witnesses are called during a trial to testify to what they have seen or heard or experienced in order to give a truthful account of the event or events in question. A witness is called to the stand to say, yes, I was there. I can tell you about it from my perspective. I saw the man steal the item from the store. I heard the woman say those things to the other woman. It was my house that was vandalized. And this is, from a simple perspective, what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. They're called to give testimony to what they have seen and heard and experienced in their time with Jesus. And as those who had been with him in his earthly ministry and had heard his teachings and seen his miracles performed, as those who had watched as he was tried and beaten and crucified, as those who had seen and touched his resurrected body, who had spoken with him and eaten with him after he was raised from the dead, these disciples had a special task as his apostles. In some sense, what they were called to was unique in the church. They were to go and testify to their firsthand experience with Jesus and who they knew him to be. Luke records for us Jesus giving his disciples this instruction in greater detail at the end of his gospel. Luke 24, we read, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin, sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. It really was a very simple message that they were called to share. In the 15th chapter of his first letter, to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel that he received and that he delivered to the Corinthians was this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the gospel. It was a simple message, except it wasn't a message that they were just meant to deliver verbally. 
They were meant to embody it, to live it. It was a radical life they were called to, a life of humble service in the way of their master, a demonstration of his selfless love, a display of a life truly forgiven and set free, a life in communion with the heavenly father and one another through Jesus Christ. In other words, they were to give evidence through their lives that they had themselves been radically transformed by the love of God in Jesus Christ and had been reborn to a new life in him. Now, don't misunderstand what I am saying here. Too often it has been said that we should preach the gospel and what? If necessary, use words. Nonsense. Nonsense. We are always to use words. Always. It is always necessary. The gospel message is, according to Paul, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And how are people to know unless we tell them? But words of a forgiven life fall flat if there is no forgiveness displayed. Words of a life reborn fall flat if newness of life is not evidenced. Words of God's love fall flat if love beyond a human capacity is not demonstrated. The disciples then were called to walk their talk. It is also a simple message, except... This message that they were given to witness to is utter foolishness to the world. As the Apostle Paul states, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What kind of God is this that would enter into his creation, take on human flesh to become like his creatures, and not only that, but would suffer and die to atone for the sin of his creatures, their transgressions against his holiness? It's preposterous. And I hope that the shock of this claim is not lost on us. And just so that no one may boast, God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And this is perfectly demonstrated in who God chose to give witness to this truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Is it the most charismatic priest, the brightest priest? No. The most skilled orators and philosophers? No. The most righteous Pharisees? No. The most powerful leaders in the community? No. It's a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, common folk. And so this was not something that they were meant to do in their own strength, in their own power, witness, to Jesus Christ. They didn't have the power. They were given an impossible task to carry an outrageous message to the end of the earth. And it wasn't just to share the message, it was to live the message and make others like them, disciples of Jesus Christ in all nations, teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded them. It was something then that required God's power. This is the point of Acts 1. 
This is why Jesus tells them to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit, he commands them in verse 4. But when, in verse 8, but when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. This is precisely what Luke records Jesus saying in chapter 24 of his gospel. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Power. It's a word we're going to see commonly associated with the Holy Spirit in Acts. And you probably already know that the Greek word is dynamis. It's a word from which we get our word dynamite. It is referring to an explosive power. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that makes possible the demonstration of the presence and reality of God's kingdom on earth, that makes possible the transformation of lives, the bringing of dead hearts to life, the opening of blind eyes. And it is a power that comes through the proclamation of the gospel, revealing through these message bearers a living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in this power that the gospel message would go out, take root in people's lives, and work out God's redemptive purposes in the world through his church. It was in this power that God's kingdom would be established on earth and would begin to shape the culture around it. And so as we read through Acts together, we're going to see in God's word the testimony of this power at work through the early church. It was in the power of the Spirit that the disciples would be able to carry out their calling as apostles, as witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And even as there is a uniqueness of their calling as apostles, as those who were equipped to give firsthand accounts to the resurrected Jesus, which we will see throughout Acts, the calling of God's people today remains largely unchanged. We, too, are called to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. We're called to be witnesses of God's saving work in our lives, witnesses of God's love and grace through faith in Jesus Christ, witnesses of Jesus Christ alive in us, witnesses of God's the truth of God's word, witnesses to the hope of the promises of the gospel, and we remain witnesses who operate in the power of his spirit. And so there's a very important lesson here for us this morning. The apostles are called to wait because they are called to go forth. They are called to do this kingdom work but they are called to do it according to the means that God was providing. They weren't meant to do things their way. They were meant to do things his way. It wasn't that they didn't already know this message that they were called to deliver. They knew it. It wasn't that they didn't know the life that they were called to live. The problem was that they had not yet been empowered. And not only would they fail miserably at their tasks without God's power, their waiting was meant to rid them of the temptation to do things the world's way, in their own strength, according to the wisdom of the world. And these methods 
would be bankrupt at truly winning souls to Christ and expanding God's kingdom on earth. And this is the very temptation we face ourselves. The great Reformed theologian, pastor, and author James Montgomery Boyce states it so well, and very simply, it is a temptation to think that we are to do the Lord's work in the world's way. And unfortunately, I, see, I think that we see it rampant in the church in America today. We in the American church come up with all sorts of flashy programs and promotions to make ourselves attractive to the world. We are a church of gimmicks and advertising tricks. We have been given the power of God and the Holy Spirit, and we are trying to push or pull the church along ourselves. We use the world's means to try to make ourselves attractive to the world because, let's be honest, it works. Well, at least, sort of. It works to draw people in. There is a quick and observable level of success. And so we can justify these means, especially when we slap titles on them like seeker-sensitive. Well, if we reason, if we want people to hear the gospel, then we have to get them through our doors. But God didn't tell us to get people to come to us. What he told us is to go to them. Furthermore, when we lure them with something other than the beauty of the gospel, if or when they come, what they come looking for isn't the gospel. And what we are feeding them isn't the gospel either because we have removed the offense of the gospel to make it more palatable and easier to swallow. Otherwise, it wouldn't be seeker-sensitive at all. What it is then is garbage, watered down, culture-contaminated, synchronistic trash that has no power to save, only power to mislead and confuse. This isn't working for God's kingdom, but against it. You want to know what the only thing we are to hold out as attractive is? The gospel of Jesus Christ. No gimmicks unadulterated, we are to tell others of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. The one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, we are to tell of the love and grace of God the Father who sent his only son to be the propitiation of our sins in order that we might have, be, have peace with him and be brought into his everlasting kingdom of joy, peace, and righteousness. And we are to do it unashamedly unreservedly in the power of the spirit it is far more attractive to one who has by the power of the spirit been pricked and been made aware that he is perishing than all the fog machines self-help messages filled with movie clips and yoga classes combined but this example is only one way that we try to use the world's means to accomplish god's ends Another temptation that Boyce points out in particular because it was the particular temptation that the disciples had fallen prey to is that we are tempted, quote, to establish the kingdom politically, by law, by getting Christians into high positions in government, and by imposing our vision of society on the world. 
As Boyce notes about the disciples, they asked Jesus if he was going to set up a political machine. They could understand that kind of power, but that was not the power Jesus was talking about. He was talking about power that flows from God. The disciples were already plotting it, weren't they? Jesus will cast out the Romans. We will once again have political power, and from there, ruling with Christ, we will be able to fulfill this task to which he has called us. Israel will be prosperous again, if only we can get rid of these tyrants. We will be a blessing, a light to the world. And this scheme might unfortunately sound disturbingly familiar to us because I think it is a temptation that the church in America has fallen prey to in recent history. Dearly beloved, I think I can say that all of us are concerned about the state of our nation. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing at all wrong with wanting to see our nation embody Christian values. Of desiring our laws and our life together would display God's justice and love and compassion and peace. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that his people will be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will long to see it in their own lives as well as in the public square and they will work to that end. We should be praying for revival in our nation and for godly leaders and to see our nation as one that fears and obeys the Lord. And so I think that we have a civic duty as citizens of this country. We should take part in the political process. We should be informed. We should vote. We should work to ensure laws in this country that promote freedom, peace, justice, equality, and prosperity. We should be concerned for the ways in which they don't. And we should, heeding God's word through the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of our community. By getting on community boards and councils and organizations, whether it be the PTA or Rotary or the city council, to work at affecting change. But, but, and here's what Acts 1 warns us against through this negative example of the disciples. We shouldn't be expecting looking for, working toward God's kingdom to be established, the gospel advanced through the political process. It doesn't. It never has. It never will. This isn't the power God uses to accomplish his ends. It is far too small. It's far too small. God has ordained that it will come through the church of Jesus Christ, set ablaze in the power of the Holy Spirit, living as witnesses of the living Lord Jesus Christ, boldly proclaiming his gospel. The purpose of the state is not to advance God's kingdom. That is the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ, as we see clearly laid out in Acts and all throughout this book. So let's be clear. America is not at the center of the redemptive history of God. God's kingdom is so much bigger, and we shouldn't lose sight of it. Therefore, at the end of this inauguration week, we should remember that ultimately it matters not who sits in the Oval Office. Whether Democrat or Republican, what matters is who is on the throne in heaven. And it matters not ultimately who sits in seats of power at the Capitol in Washington. These are people who sit there because we granted them this power by our votes. Rather, it matters who sits in these pews 
and others like them all around this nation and in every nation who are filled with power from on high. The power of the Holy Spirit. It is through us that God's kingdom is advanced. And God tells us that even the gates of hell will not prevail, will not be able to stand against the advance of his church, his kingdom, through his spirit-empowered church. We will see it in Acts. And so, brothers and sisters, even as we mourn, over the strife that we face as a nation over the past few years, we can rest assured that God is working out his redemptive purposes. Not just here in America, but across the globe through men and women who have been saved by God's grace alone in Jesus Christ alone, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and sent forth to be witnesses to the risen Lord. Witnesses whose concern is not one particular nation, but the kingdom of God that crosses every boundary and border in every time and place. And to God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come giving thanks and praise to you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the power that we have access to in your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would lean on that power, that we would rely on that power, that we would depend on that power, Lord, to go and to be your witnesses. Lord, show us the ways in which we have sought the world's means to accomplish your ends, Lord. Help us to repent of that. Help us to come and to seek your power in your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit afresh, that you would send us out as your witnesses to the end of the earth, Lord, and we pray that you would accomplish your will through us, your church. And may it all be for your glory, for we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and 